0: We have an opportunity this morning to look into a very interesting exchange between Jesus and someone in the crowd, the crowd that was always around him when he uh, traveled anywhere he went. The exchange is found in Luke chapter 13. Luke 13 is what you're looking for. Verse 22. Someone in the crowd has a question for him. It's a question, um, I think when you see the question, you'll understand why the question um, is so intriguing to us. It's a question that grips us right away, not only in terms of its urgency, but also because the question carries with it the capacity for the answer to teach us so much about what God is like. Why he does what he does and about who he is, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, we read in the Bible that God is love and that God is merciful. Well, just how loving is he? How merciful is he? How does one even begin to measure those things or achieve a reference point for God's love and for God's mercy? And then we add in the reality of hell. And what does that mean? What does that mean about the love of God and about the mercy of God? That's where we're headed today. It all begins with a really simple question that someone asked him. Jesus uses it as a launching point to take us further into our understanding of who God is and what our right response to him is. So let's read the exchange first, and then we'll talk about the question, and then we'll talk about the answer, okay? Luke thirteen twenty two is where we're at. We'll read through verse 30. If you're able to stand uh, this morning, I want to invite you to do that in honor of God and his word. This is Luke 13, beginning in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Heavenly Father, we're gathered, we're ready, we're listening. Of all of the things that we could be doing this morning, right now, our eyes and our ears are fixed on the words of Jesus. Please expand our understanding expand our understanding of who you are and who we are. We pray that you would nourish our souls with the word of Christ, and we ask in his holy name, amen. Please be seated. The person in the crowd wants to know how many people will be saved. Interesting question, isn't it? Have you heard about being saved? What do you think when someone presents to you and insists to you on your need to be saved? How does that make you feel? The Bible presents to us that humanity was created good but fallen. Make sure you understand that. Created good but fallen. Humanity chose sin over God. Humanity chose to live in independence from God instead of fellowship with God. We turned from God. That's what sin is. Sin is turning away from God. We turned from God, right? Our first parents did that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. They turned from God. That was humanity turning from God in a corporate sense. We've all done that individually also, turned away from God. We don't want to live under his law. We don't want to live under his rule. We resist all of those things. We are now corrupt and evil. Created good, remember, but now corrupt and evil, although not incapable of doing things that are morally good. So the Bible presents us with that news. The Bible also presents to us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we have earned by our sin against God is death, physical death. The Bible calls that the wages of sin. Because we've sinned against God, we've earned, we are deserving of death, physical death. And not only that, not only physical death, but if we die, having not repented of our sins against God, we remain apart from God forever in hell In hell, this place that's referenced in this passage, verse 28, this place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place on the outside. Remember, they couldn't get in through the door. They're on the outside. All their complaints and all their arguments do not prevail. They're on the outside in that other place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and they can't get through to the place where God dwells. In spite of all the tales that we have created and everything that we would want to be true, this great tale about how when we all die, we float off to sit on a cloud with the angels and we get to play the harp forever. Despite all of those things, the truth remains that hell is real and that we have all earned hell by our choices and our constant opposition to God in our spirit. We have no right to be with him. Why would he want to welcome us into his presence anyway when all we've done through all of our life is reject him at every turn? Why then would he say in the end, come and be with me? There's no justice in that. And God is a God of justice. We choose hell and we receive hell. We've all chosen ourselves over God. Me included and me especially. And we deserve this punishment. Now, the Bible presents us with something else. Remember, I'm asking you how you feel about being saved. This man's question or this person's question in the passage is about being saved, okay? The Bible presents us with something else, namely that God saves sinners. In spite of their sin and in spite of their deserving hell, God saves from hell and in The place of hell gives heaven, an an ill-deserved heaven, a heaven that we've done everything to not deserve. He gives it as a complete gift. The best thing in place of the worst thing. The Bible tells us God saves sinners from hell. There is a heresy that just means wrong teaching a heresy called universalism. Universalism claims that God saves every single person. That's why it's called universalism. God saves everyone. In the end, all are saved. No matter what anyone does or decisions they make, everyone in the end is, is okay. It's a very attractive thing to believe. We can see why that belief and that teaching would naturally arise Like, that's what we kind of want to be true in a way that, yeah, we would really like it if we could present that kind of a soft God to the world. Also, that frees us up to do whatever we want in this life. In the end, if everyone is saved, then go do whatever you want, no restrictions, no narrow path, no hard path, whatever you want, and God's just okay with it in the end. It's not true. Universalism is not true. It can't be true. It can't be biblical. This is one of many passages that directly confront that teaching and deny that teaching. There's people on the outside. There's people that can't get in. Not only does God not save everyone, he doesn't even save the people who want to get in at the end and are crying out to get in. He says no to them because it's too late. They're told, no, depart from me. I don't know where you come from. So God saves sinners, but not all sinners. Some are turned away. Many are turned away. So the question then that naturally arises is, well, if God saves sinners, but doesn't save all sinners... How many does he save? Many? Or few? Is it a large number or is it a small number? That's what this person that we meet in Luke 13 is interested to know. That's what he asked Jesus about. Will those who are saved be few? Now, you might be interested in that question as well. I'm really interested in that question. I think the reason that it's such a compelling question is that it seems so closely related to God's character. The answer to this question, many or few, seems like a, seems like a window into the character of God. Just how merciful is this God that we worship? What if those who are saved are few? What if that's true? What if the number is few? What does that mean about God? What would you think of a God who saves few? What would that say about his character? Would that make him more merciful in your eyes? And how many sinners would God need to save in order to be the kind of God that you want him to be? More than 50%? More than 80%? What's your number? We humans like to devise these little tests for God to see if he's okay according to our standard or if he'll do what we want him to do. We say things like, God, if you'll only do this for me, then I'll do that for you. God, if you love me and you really care about me, then do this, answer this prayer. We say things like, you know, if if God really is all-powerful and he really is all-loving, then he will demonstrate that by doing this or preventing that. And then if he doesn't do that, then we use that as a reason to say, ah, he must not be all-powerful, or all-loving. And we devise these little tests for him. Well, here we have before us a question that might be a very important question for you because, it ha- because of how it impacts your view of God. It was an important enough question to this person in the crowd that he went to Jesus with it. He, I don't know, maybe he just got one crack. He could ask one question of Jesus as Jesus is passing through, and this is the one he chose. <clears throat> Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now we get to look at Jesus' answer. What will it be? What will he say? What is God like anyway? Does he save many or does he save few? And what does that mean about his character? So let's look at the answer. This is starting in verse 24. The first thing we want to observe is that Jesus Jesus doesn't dodge the question, even though he seems to do that at first. Ultimately, when we look at the whole passage, he doesn't dodge the question. He answers the question. He gives a complete answer. He gives a helpful answer. He gives a a theology-shaping and theology-enriching answer. It's an answer that opens up new territory for us in how we understand the character of God and how we understand ourselves. His answer leads us away from keeping simple tally marks for heaven and hell and drawing a compl- conclusion based on the tally marks that we make. He makes three main points. This is part one of his answer. Understand your own need for mercy. That's my summary of the first part of his answer. This is verses 24 to 27. Understand your own need for mercy. The person says, Lord, will the number of the saved be few? First part of his answer, strive to enter through the narrow door. That doesn't sound like an answer to the question, does it? But he goes to this first priority of understanding your own need for mercy. The very first thing he says basically is, hey, look to yourself first. Understand your own need for mercy. That's a that's a turning of the question back on the questioner. The questioner, he wants to know about the fate of the world and think about all those other people out there. He wants to think, really big picture. Will the number of the saved be few? Tell me what the big picture is. Jesus brings it back to the small picture, to his own life and to the individual lives of those in the crowd. He's speaking to the whole crowd. And he gives this questioner and everyone in the crowd something to do personally, strive to enter through the narrow door. He directs them to understand their own immediate need. Obviously, the narrow door, the narrow door is a a figure of speech. It's a a metaphor. It's an image. It's probably a metaphor for Jesus, for the way of Jesus. When Jesus uses this metaphor of the narrow door, he probably means something like, do the hard work of choosing the less traveled path. That seeks salvation in me. As opposed to the well-traveled path. Taught by the Pharisees. That seeks salvation through outward righteousness. And that assumes salvation. Because of ethnic heritage. And then he tells this little parable about the people of the house. To emphasize seeking that salvation immediately, today, before it's too late. The door won't be open forever, and the door will not be open to those who are merely familiar with Jesus. Hey, you taught in our streets. We ate near you. Like, we were with you, like, every day. How can we not be acceptable? Like, you might even know my name. faith in him and full trust in his word must be exercised and must be exercised in the limited time available. So what he says amounts to a warning to the one who's asking the question. And I think it's a warning that we all need to hear and one that you in particular may need to hear. There are lots of people in this room and everyone has their own questions for God. You might have lots of questions for God, just like this person here has a question for God. And you are waiting for answers to those questions. And not only answers, but answers that you find acceptable before exercising trust and full faith in the word of Jesus Christ. And the temptation, the really strong temptation, is to sit back and question and question and question and question and to look for books and to look for speakers that confirm what you want to hear about God and about Jesus before choosing to follow the way of Jesus. You are waiting for confirmation of the character of God before offering repentance and faith toward God through Jesus Christ. You want to be sure that this God and this Jesus conform to your idea of who they should be before you submit yourself to God to be conformed to who he says you should be. And that's exactly backwards. He is God, and you are not. Let me tell you something. I've been, I've been a Christian for about 25 years. God still does not conform to who Matt Brandt thinks God should be. God is, the being who God is, is not who I would draw up if I were drawing up what I think God should be like. Still. And by the way, that doesn't indicate a problem with God. That indicates a problem with me. All I'm saying is after 25 years, God still doesn't conform to who I think he should be. And praise God that he doesn't. Before you have all your questions answered and before you decide God has to conform to who I want him to be and answer all the questions the way that I find it acceptable, you need to get on your knees and kiss the feet of Jesus of Nazareth. And then start asking questions and start listening. Understand your own need for mercy and your own need to be saved. That's the bulk of Jesus' answer. He spends almost his whole answer talking about that. Only at the very end does he address the question that was asked. First, there's the priority of you, Getting right with God. Yourself before asking, well, what about all those other people? Let's move on to the next part of the answer. This is the theology-shaping revelation that Jesus makes about God's mercy. What we learn here is that God's mercy is not measured by the number of people who are saved, but by the kind of people who are saved. if we wanted to be more esoteric and highbrow in how we say it, we could say that God's mercy is not measured numerically, but anthropologically, having to do with what man is like. That is, if we want to know the answer to the question, how merciful is the God of the Bible? The way to proceed is not by counting people. And f- not by finding out whether those who are saved are few or many. It's not the way to discover the extent of God's mercy. That would be a simple method that doesn't require much thought, but it would be wrong. If we want to take the measure of God's mercy, we must look not at the number of people who are saved, but the kind of people who are saved. And we could summarize his answer this way. What are the kind? Who are the people who are saved? What, of what kind are they? The saved are from every nation. That's the breadth of mercy. Verse 29. And the worst sinners. That's the depth of mercy. Verse 30. What kind Of what kind are the people that are saved? From every nation, that's the breadth. The worst sinners, that's the depth. Let's spend a minute on each of those and then we'll be finished, okay? Verse 29. Jesus indicates that people will come from east and west, from north and south to recline at table in the kingdom of God. He's saying these words to a Jewish audience. From outside of Israel, people will come from every direction on the compass, from every nation, every language group, every tribe, and enter the kingdom of God through the narrow door of faith in Jesus Christ. From every nation, north, south, east, west, from all over the place. What did we learn? God's mercy is not a parochial mercy. It's not a mercy that's confined just to the people of Israel. And wouldn't we expect it to be? Wouldn't we expect God's mercy to be confined just to these people that he loves, who he has the original relationship with in terms of nationhood? Wouldn't we open the Bible and expect to find the Jews worshiping a God that just loves them, and helps them win their battles, and increases the prospects of their nation, and secures just their little nation. That's what the gods of all the other nations did. Every nation had their own God, and he helped them win their battles, and secured their fortunes, and they fought against other nations, and whichever nation was the winner, well, their God was the strongest, They all had these private little gods, these parochial gods, but the Jews have a God who not only cares for them and their future, but every other nation too. How could that be? I'll tell you how that could be. The Bible presents us with the incredible piece of information that the Jews didn't create their own God. He created them. There was no Jewish nation or people. There wasn't a group of Jewish people sitting around together around a campfire, looking up at the stars and the sun and the moon and the creation around them and said, hey, let's, let's make a God out of this thing that we can worship. Now, they did do that later in disobedience. Disobedience. They began because God took an idol worshiper from Ur of the Chaldeans named Abraham and plucked him out of obscurity and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you, you and your wife who do not have the capacity to produce children, even one. I'm going to make a nation out of you who can't do anything to reproduce a person. How can any kind of a nation come from that? It can't unless God creates it. If the Jews had created their own God, he wouldn't have been a God that loved and wanted to save other nations. Why would anyone create a God like that? They wouldn't. So what a a wonderful and faith-confirming thing it is to open the Bible and see a God presented to us who knows no favoritism. It's an equal love set upon all nations, all continents, all peoples. There are no superior peoples. There is a superior God and inferior mankind. And the mercy of this God is so broad it extends to every point on the compass. That's the first measurement of his mercy. It does not extend to every person. It does extend to every nation. That's verse 29. That's the breadth of God's mercy. People will come from east, this way, west, north, south, recline at table in the kingdom of God. Second measurement, verse 30. The worst sinners. This is the depth of God's mercy. When Jesus says, verse thirty, "And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last." My My view is that he's talking about the stunning reversal whereby those those people, like those really, really, really bad people, like you know the prostitutes and tax collectors will enter the kingdom of God. Whereas those really, really good and proper people that feel like they're at the head of the line behavior-wise will not enter the kingdom. Those first will find themselves last, while these last in terms of behavior and morality will find themselves first. Now, my view is a minority view. I want to tell you right up front, I hold a, a minority view here in seeing Jesus talking about worse offenders and worse sinners here. Most commentators, when they read this passage, see Jesus as continuing his thought about the Jews and the Gentiles, saying, yeah, the, the Gentiles, they're the last, they're actually going to be first, and the Jewish people who are first, they're actually going to be last. And there's good reason for that. But So I see Jesus switching to a, a different measurement here, to a different subject. Going from the breadth of mercy to all people, now to the depth of mercy, to the worst offenders. One reason I hold that view, hold this minority view, is the conjunction that's used here. The words, and behold. Those words seem more likely to introduce something different than they do to continue the previous thought. If, if Jesus was still talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and how they relate in being the first and the last, we would expect probably to see something like the words, therefore. People will come from east and west, north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So therefore, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. But the words chosen are, and behold... As if to say, consider also. Or, in addition, know this. Not only will every nation be represented in the kingdom, not only will that be an offensive thing to you, but understand this also. Within your own nation, the ones who you consider the worst, they will be the first. And what an offense that is, too. Those people that you consider beneath you enter before you. You know, the Jews had trouble with both of those realities. It's all over the Gospel of Luke. So offensive. What? Gentiles are included in this? And then, shockingly, especially in Luke 15, what are you talking about? Eating with tax collectors and sinners and all of the grumbling that that occasioned? How could those things be true? So, long explanation, but that's what I see happening here is that Jesus is addressing both of those great offenses to them. Gentile inclusion. Tax collector and prostitute inclusion. Ahead of us, how could it be? One of those revealing the breadth of God's mercy and the other the depth. That's what we mean when we say that God's mercy is not to be measured by the number of people that he saves, but by the kind of people that he saves. Every nation, the worst sinners. That's where Jesus goes with his answer. You want to know how merciful God is? Consider not the number of people, but the kind. Every nation, the worst sinners. So when we step back and we look at all this, the big picture, what is Jesus saying about how to measure the mercy of God, the breadth, the depth? We realize, as we step back 30,000 feet, we realize that God's mercy cannot be measured. Now, you could have told me that before the sermon. There's no way to measure God's mercy. We know it now for sure. If we try to measure it our way by counting people, heaven and in hell, we arrive at data points that we can understand and make a comparison and we would each draw our own conclusion about how merciful is this God. But when we switch to measuring mercy in the way that Jesus describes, we discover that we can never fully sound the extent of God's mercy. Who can quantify the, the seriousness in the offensiveness of your sin against God. How could you ever put a number on that? If God's mercy is so deep that it saves the worst offenders, think of the worst sinners you can think of. Think of the worst sins you can think of. God saves those people who commit those sins. The worst How can any of us measure that kind of mercy? A mercy that saves the last and the worst. Consider also that God is under no obligation to save. Consider that he is not obligated to save even one person. That God chose to save and that he chose to save in the costliest way possible by giving his beloved son none of this is to be taken for granted we take it for granted because we've heard it so often it need not have been as it is god is completely free he is free forever he chose to create he chose to love and he I was made a fabulous observation He said, it's much easier to understand a God who creates than a God who saves. Creation, we can understand. All the beauty, all the wonder, all the variety. Of course, you would do that if you were God. But why would God ever choose to save sinners with all of the suffering and all of the mocking and all of the pain? Why would God, a perfectly free God, choose the path of suffering? especially to redeem and save a people who don't love him and oppose him at every turn, people like you and people like me. Now we're looking at this this breathtaking moral canopy. It's like we look up at the canopy of the stars of creation. Now we're just looking at this breathtaking moral canopy of this God who amazes us that we could never get to the end of, of a God that not only creates but saves. For God to save even one sinner, one, is an act of infinite condescension and glory. If you don't think so, if you don't think that that's impressive, if it takes a little more than that for you, a few more people than one, for you to think that God is merciful, for God to be impressive in his mercy, if that doesn't quite do it for you, that God would save one, I've got a question for you. When are you going to forgive that one person in your life? How far off is the day when you release that one person from the prison that you've been holding them in? The one that you have locked away forever because they treated you that way. Is that day ever coming? How can you sit in judgment? of the mercy of God, while you hold people, real people, made in the image of God, precious souls, in your personal jail. You obligate God to show them mercy. And you say, if if God doesn't save them and save everyone, God is not merciful. And yet there's the one in your jail, in the hell that you've put them in, And you say, that's okay. We ourselves are casters into hell. And we keep people down there, and then we insist that God not be. See, there's a difference between us and God. One of us is a well of infinite mercy, and the other is a record-keeping, cold-hearted, worker of evil. And for we evil ones to ask about and try to measure the mercy of God, there's only one one fitting response. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Cast yourself upon Jesus. Go to him with your cold, merciless, evil heart and say, Jesus, I've got a cold, merciful, evil heart. I'm a caster into hell, but you are a savior from hell. Save me, Lord, and then teach me what this Father is like. Let's stand together. Father, we are the worst offenders. How could we ever measure our sin against you? Every turn away from you that we have ever made in our lives is an immeasurable weight of wrong. Not only is every turn factually wrong, like it just doesn't make sense because nothing else really does satisfy, you're the only one who satisfies. We're factually wrong when we turn, each turn is morally wrong. We turn from the good to the evil. And just as we can't measure the depth of our sin. It would be the number of turns times a million times infinity. We can't measure your mercy to us either. All we can do is look at the son on the cross and say, this is a sacrifice of infinite value, Jesus, to pay for an infinite depth of sin. We praise Jesus, our sin bearer. We praise you, Father the Lord, who is a merciful God. Amen.